Hey everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of the Fallen Outdoors Midwest Podcast. This episode we have on Casey Brewster, who runs Snake Mountain Pack Goats in the state of Arkansas. They got a really cool thing they're doing for first responders and veterans. They do hiking trips and hunting trips for bear and various other things using pack goats to take the equipment to the campsites where they're going to be staying. So really cool, really enjoyed the podcast with Casey. Um, He's also a biologist for the University of Arkansas, so he's got some really cool projects he's working on. Um, If you could, head on over to Facebook, check them out at Snake Mountain Pack Goats. Um, They got some really awesome stuff they're doing, so if you want to get involved, hit up Casey. Also, this podcast is brought to you by True Products, a veteran-owned company, Steve Eason out of Oklahoma. TrueProducts.com, head on over there. Use promo code TRUETFO, that's T-R-U-T-F-O, to get a 50% discount on all oils prior to hunting season. Check us out. Thanks. With that, we'll go ahead and just get started. If you would, Casey, go ahead and introduce yourself, and let's talk a little bit about what you do. Uh, so my name is uh, Casey Brewster. I'm the founder of uh, Snake Mountain Pack Goats, and um, I'm also a, uh, a research biologist working on various projects in the state of Arkansas, and I work with the game and fish part time. How long has Snake Mountain Pack Goats been a thing or been around? We started uh, almost three years ago. We were floating, let's see. Actually, no, it has been three years. In May, this uh, past May, May, June, I think is when we finally, you know, it it all depends on what exact part of the 501c3 that you say was our start date, but somewhere in there, May, June of uh, three years ago. So, Is that something that you started? Your prior service, correct? What branch did you serve in? So I was Army, so Arkansas um, Army National Guard, 39th okay. Brigade, uh, one of the one of the local guys. Um, and um, what what was the other question? <laughs> well, I'll just what'd you do in the service, and oh. I was just looking for what branch you were. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Army, I was uh, 11 Bravo, uh, 30, 39th Brigade. I uh, we deployed to Kuwait, Operation Iraqi. Uh, what was it? Operation Southern Watch. 99,000 and then uh, OIF and uh, 0405 and then uh, and then 0708. Okay, right on. So what that's kind of a weird jump to go from 11 Bravo to a research file just working with the Arkansas. How do were you going to school at the time to do that kind of thing or so it's uh, it's it's kind of interesting the um, the first time I went to Iraq uh, 0405 um I had a you know a really good mentor, my squad leader, and we had a lot of conversations. He was really big into education. He had his master's degree, and we had had a conversation you know one night um, you know about he kept bugging me about going to college. I had you know people talk about having a 4.0 in high school and whatever, and, and I always strive to get a 0.40. 
Um, I, I was terrible. <laughs> so I really thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was crazy that he, uh, you know, kept pushing me toward college. And it wasn't just like he tried to push everyone that way. It felt, at least to me, it felt like he was specifically pushing me to go to college. And um, he was killed in action uh, while we were there. And, uh, you know, it was a really big, important part of my life. And that was such a, you know, that, that was such a, uh, you know, powerful moment just feeling like he always had a lot of faith in me and whatnot. And so I came back and said, well, I screw it. I'm going to go to college. And I had no clue what I was going to do. I was worried about just passing. I, you know, never, I didn't know what an A looked like, you know? Um, and next thing I knew, I kind of, it really, uh, I, you know, I embraced it really put a lot of effort in school. And next thing I knew, I loved it. And it also helped me with, you know, in some ways with PTSD, because it kept me really distracted, something really focused yeah. on. And uh, I ran into some pretty good mentors at smaller schools that really started pushing me toward I have enough, you know, I love the outdoors and I loved sort of the field. And they're like, well, man, biology, what's wrong with biology? And I was doing really well in biology. And next thing I know, I was going to grad school and fell in love with conservation and uh, and field research and ecology and sort of, you know, never looked back. So do when you're doing the biology stuff, do you, and you're kind of getting into your major classes, do you have like a specific field that you have to pick, whether it's, you want to study like upland game or waterfowl or big game, that kind of thing. There is there, you kind of have sort of different pathways of what type of scientist you're going to be, whether you're going to be like a cell molecule person, work with genetics, or you're going to work with viruses or diseases or, you know, more laboratory stuff, or those are going to be more of the field biologist type. But within that, you know, we sort of go toward ecology slash evolutionary, but you can also, you know, some programs have wildlife degrees. Okay. I didn't have a wildlife degree. They're still not super common. I think we only have one place in Arkansas at Arkansas Tech where you can get grad wildlife type specific, but you can work in an ecology type environment and work on upland game birds or, or work on trout or whatever. So you could still do that. Um, and my, my pathway was more of ecology and physiology, but it was mainly in using sort of those, those techniques, those tools for conservation. So everything okay. that I'm interested in is, is understanding not just the big picture of what's causing maybe a species to decline or a species or a population to decline or to, you know, to be lost, but to also understand what the exact mechanisms are. And so my, the tools that I use are sort of guide geared to kind of do a little bit of both. A lot of, a lot of conservation biologists kind of do one or the other, and this is kind of designed to, to, to help you do both. Okay. And while you're going to school, were you interning with the Arkansas Department of Fish and Game or whatever they call their DNR yeah. down there? No, uh, I wasn't. It was actually, so I worked on uh, glade habitats. I worked on the Eastern collared lizard. Uh, oh, wow. So, so the, the guy, the TFO guys that are around Texas and uh, Oklahoma, New Mexico, that area, they know that species. Um, they're kind of rare over in this part um, in their species of decline. Anyways, I worked on that species and the habitats they live in, as it turned out, feral hogs love to go to those habitats. And they're, so if, if you're working in those type of habitats, you're going to have a much better idea of what the populations of feral hogs are doing. And I was always working on government land. And so I always kept bugging Forest Service, Game and Fish, whoever was the landowner of that area about feral hogs. And finally, 
uh, one day, they said, you know what, we could give you a part-time job and you can just do it, help us do that yourself. And uh, super flexible job. And I'm like, man, it's hard to beat, you know, going and uh, trapping and and chasing pigs for, you know, a little bit extra cash. Uh, So I jumped on it. And that was about a little over three years ago. So you're, you're working on a project kind of studying lizards that led to feral hogs because the hogs eat the lizards right. or what yeah that's... <laughs> yeah no it was it really was just a a circumstance where uh the game and fish knew i uh, it was mainly it was a game of fish that hired me the game and fish guys and those biologists they knew apparently that casey even though he works on lizards he must have a pretty good eye for these feral hogs or whatever okay. so so that was a totally separate thing. So I wear, <laughs> I, I kind of consider myself a, a biology mercenary at this point. I don't have a single full-time job. So I do two different things for the game and fish. And then I am a research assistant at the University of Arkansas. I still work on Eastern collar lizards and glade research, glade conservation. I wouldn't necessarily call it so much research, but then I'm also working uh, through a, on another project on smallmouth bass oh, wow. um, with uh, Douglas Lab at the U of A, um, and then you know feral hog from time to time, and then uh, you know like I just did a bunch of Ozark uh, big eared bat um, sampling with Forest Service, so I'm kind of uh, uh, um, you know a, a sort of a mercenary. You know I, I get called up to do a lot of different projects. So yeah, I see that. So I know you mentioned the fallen outdoors. Um, maybe East Texas guys or something. Have you worked with them on these kind of, do they have land access or something that maybe helped you study these feral hogs or how'd you, how'd you run into them? Uh, so I was, what I was really, what I was mainly saying is, you know, a lot of folks around what, so those popular, the, the species I'm talking about, Eastern collar lizards, yeah. they're coming out in parts of Texas. Oh, okay. All right. A lot All of right. our outdoorsmen, you know, our veteran outdoorsmen that are around Texas and parts of Oklahoma and, and over that way, they would be familiar with, this species, oh, okay. but if you're in Tennessee or Missouri or or Ohio, you probably might not have even heard of this animal, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've heard of it, but how many different types of lizards are there? I feel like there's a new one there's, found every <laughs> every month. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah, there's tons of them, especially out toward Texas. I mean, like you go to to some places in Texas and Arizona and that that area. There's more species. There's a ton of different species. Some of them may look similar, but a lot of them look way different than each other. You know, so it's sort of a a, a lizard lover's dream if you go out there. So. Yeah, it sounds like something my son would be interested in because he was just. I don't even know if this is a lizard or not, but he had this um we just moved out west of town and in our shelter belt he found a little horny toad thing mm-hmm. it was like a toad with a bunch of spikes on it and him and the yep. neighborhood kids were playing around with it end up stabbing him or something like that i'm like man he's really like to see one of them east collared lizard things he yes. fun with that thing so yes oh no kids love these collars so it's the only species in north america that runs on its back two legs oh so wow oh i think i've seen videos of those things all right what they call the the Jesus Christ lizard or the bat lizard <laughs> okay. that runs on water. They do the same thing, but they do it on land. These guys will run literally across, you know, like a parking lot. If you're out in like East Texas and, and he, you know, you have sort of rocky habitat on the edge of a parking lot, you might see this lizard running back two legs across the edge of the parking lot. No kidding. That's why. Yeah. They're, they're, they're really crazy and uh, they're rare. You know, it's a species of conservation uh, uh, interest in Arkansas and in Southern Missouri. 
And uh, so it ended up being, you know, something I, I, I wasn't necessarily a lizard guy. I was really interested in lots of different things. But whenever a conservation project sort of lends itself and you have some funding for it and you have some interest for it, you know, you want to strike while the iron's hot. And so I ended up doing my entire PhD dissertation on eastern collar lizards and a lot of stuff around that model system. Okay. So that was, was that kind of like the first big, I guess, project or dissertation yeah. piece that you've worked on? When did you start that? So I started that in uh, the fall of 2012. Oh, wow. And how long did it take to, how long does it take to even do something like that? So this was my, my dissertation took six years. Oh, wow. Um, it, yeah. They take anywhere from four to eight years. You know, it just really depends on your field and also you, how, how, uh, you know, how good you are at getting stuff done, but also there's some luck involved. Um, you know, you can like, you might start working on a project to answer a question and everything seems like it's going well. Let's say you're working on feral hogs and all of a sudden, you know, something happens and you can't find feral hogs that year anymore or whatever it is you're working on or something just implodes on you that puts you back another year, you know? So there is some luck involved. I, I never run in any major hiccups and uh, you know, there was, there was uh, you know, we had a pretty good strong question that was trackable. That was, that was not easy to answer, but it was answerable. And uh, so, you know, I was able to get through that. And then through that, because it was an actual conservation project, I was able to get funding from U.S. Fish and Wildlife and from Arkansas Game and Fish Commission to keep working on that species. And so I do reintroductions. I've got uh, I've got um, a Head Start program at the Little Rock Zoo. Oh, wow. They have, they have breeder lizards for me. And here in the future, we'll start having babies. And then when they get to a certain age, we can turn them loose at these different sites, all while U.S. Corps of Engineers, the TNC, the Game and Fish, Forest Service, uh, just about all your government land agencies are working on this specific type of habitat, trying to restore it. And once it's restored to a certain level, then I go and bring lizards there, turn them loose and sort of track how, you know, that they, that they do come back or sometimes they don't always come back. You know, they don't always, uh, it's sort of, that's how life is, you know, it can be, uh, harder to predict, um, you know, that they'll come back more often than not. We've had a lot of really good success and it's, it's a lot, it's really interesting. It's low budget stuff. You know, this is, uh, this is something I'm able to do. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't going to give you a ton of money to go work on a lizard. They will to work on white tailed deer, you know, or, or yeah. black bears or trout, um, lizards, you know, it's not always easy. So you got to be good at sort of scratching and, and doing shoestring budgets. We've come up with a lot of different ways to get money and to keep things cheap and, and to keep this research project going. Is this now, is this the team, is this a team through, I'm assuming University of Arkansas is kind of where you're doing this stuff from. Is it you with Yes. Maybe some like graduate level students or something that you're doing this with, or is it? Yes, it's actually, it's a partnership through the USGS co-op unit, which is your, um, your research uh, unit. And they do a lot of wildlife stuff and non-wildlife stuff at the U of A. Um, and then the biology department, a couple of different uh, labs there, the Douglas lab and the Beaupre lab, Beaupre labs, a pit viper lab and uh, Douglas labs, a conservation genetics lab. And then uh, UCA, um, Matt Gifford, um, that does a lot of the same stuff that I do. Uh, he He's at UCA and he has grad students that work on this. And so it is sort of a collaborative thing. And then the Game of Fish will help me from time to time. Forest Service will help me. It just depends on what we're working on. So, Yeah, I know you, I know you mentioned uh, it's kind of a luck of, is it so much the luck of just 
a solid dissertation that you think you could run with just happens to fall into your lap as you're looking to kind of go into this PhD program or are you like kind of, you know, I mean, I guess, how do you even find out about that stuff to do? So if you, you know, let's say you were starting and and you you were somebody that was interested in, you know, you're interested in this species. Let's say you're interested in, you know, let's say uh, upland game birds, you know, you're interested in that. And in your master's degree, more often than not, you won't have to have, you know, anything too crazy. You know, maybe let's track some birds. Let's see if they're, how they're migrating or whatever. But then when you get to your PhD, more often than not, your committee and whatever grad school you're going to go to, they're going to want you to answer a question that is that is an, un, a truly an unknown question. We really want to know, and not something simple like, do the birds move from here to there? You know, right. they're going to want to know what's causing these changes in migration shifts. What's truly causing that? Maybe we got to model it. Maybe we got to track some birds. We've got to catch a bunch. We got to use, you know, citizen scientists, whatever, uh, to answer that question. So sometimes something that you're interested in you uh for whatever reason you get a leg up on a ways that you might be able to answer that and how tractable it is and then other times you really don't know and you really you know bang your head for a year and realize i can't even answer that yeah just trying to like figure out where to start right exactly and whether that was the right question or not well maybe we shift this totally around and we, we try to ask it on a different species or we ask a totally different question and so that's sort of the some of the scary parts of getting into you know a phd in, in ecology or conservation or wildlife you know in general so because were you like specifically interested in the eastern collar lizard or was it just like a hey here's an opportunity to do this sort of thing so would you be interested I, I was, I, I, uh, I learned about, I worked on a collar lizard on my master's degree, but at the okay. end of my master's, I wasn't planning on working on that species. I was okay. willing to work on, I was, I was probably going to end up in a reptile because I went to Steve Bopre's lab, which uh, he does pit vipers. And, uh, I was happy, you know, to work on pit vipers, uh, maybe mammals, you know, that maybe that, that, the pit vipers are actually, uh, you know, eating, maybe look working on mice. Um, you know, I love the idea of getting into wildlife. I didn't have a, a specific species I was interested in, but at the time that I started my PhD, the state of Arkansas really was putting a lot of emphasis on glade habitat restoration, which is where this lizard lives, right? They love, that's the habitat they live in. In this part of the country, they don't live anywhere outside of that type of habitat. So they're putting a lot of emphasis in it and no one was doing conservation work on that species at all. So here was this leg up and my advisor, Steve, was like, look, you know, you have a a really good opportunity to work in this species that no one else is working on and no one knows about. And funding may come along, you know, there may, may come a time where Forest Service of Game and Fish is, okay, we, we've done all this work now, we did, how do we get the lizards there? And sure enough, I timed it just right. Had I wanted to work on Eastern Colorado lizards 20 years ago, the state wasn't really all that focused on it, you know? And so I wouldn't have maybe gotten all, you know, a lot of these things. So there is a certain amount of luck that gets involved okay. with, with any of these type of projects. You've mentioned the glade habitat stuff twice now. Can you kind of explain what that is and how it ties into the lizard that you're working on okay so the ozarks so the interior highlands uh historically so the ozark mountains and the washita mountains historically had a lot of areas that were uh more exposed bedrock sort of a limestone dolomite bedrock exposed and the dominant vegetation would be grasses 
and that might give way and start running into a bit of a savanna where you have some oaks and maybe some pines or whatever. And then you would get into the all out forest. And what's happened over the past 100 years or so, uh, especially with sort of the Smokey the Bear era, uh, we went for, you know, 100 years without having prescribed fires or without having fires on the landscape. We really controlled it. Even back to European settlement, really controlled uh, fires. Well, what that has allowed uh, the forest to do is sort of take over those open xeric limestone prairie uh, habitats that were really common, you know, 150 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, it's just slowly getting less and less. At the same time, this species relies on those habitats, those and a handful of others that are really really unique. These are like miniature deserts, miniature, you know, Kansas prairie slash Texas rocky desert areas. Okay. Just little pockets all over the Ozarks and the Washita's. And so, now there's been a lot of focus on trying to restore a lot of that habitat and the species that, uh, you know, that live in those habitats. Okay. So the lizard being an important species in this habitat, but when you think of like on a grand scale of animals, everyone always thinks about like the big stuff or the stuff that everybody hunts and stuff. So what's the, what's the significance of restoring this lizard into these glades habitat? Is it because maybe it's endangered or? Yes. So it's not. And so whenever we say endangered, we're talking about a federal listing. And and like I said, in the core of the range over in Texas and those areas, they're doing fine. So they're not federally listed. But in Arkansas, Missouri, 50 years ago, there was there was way more populations. There was populations all over the Ozarks and all over the Washita's. In fact, when I was a, you know, a younger man, I remember the collar lizards being around the, the Washita's. I'm, I'm from the Washita's. And, okay. uh, and then since then they're, they're pretty much gone just about completely from the Washita's very, very rare. And the Ozarks, there's, there's sort of a pocket area along the white river, along the Buffalo river. And outside of that, they really start disappearing not many populations. So they're protected in a conservation interest in uh, Arkansas, Missouri. Um, they're important from, you know, there's several different ways that you can always approach any type of non-game species and the community. So first thing to recognize is this is a really important predator that is endemic to those type of habitats. And so they have a really, anytime you have a, a top predator within a habitat, the rest of the community uh, really relies on that predator in a lot of different ways. And in, in each case is a little bit different. It's really hard to put a, to paint with a broad brush, but it usually just makes the entire community more stable. Okay. Right. And so they're really important for the rest of the community and that community being everything from roadrunners to other snakes to lizards, but a whole lot of it are sort of uh, the other endemic or, or obligatory grasshoppers and arthropods. And then the, some of the ones that we really are concerned about are these glade plants, uh, these plants that are, you know, specific pollinators will pollinate and uh, sort of these rare plants. And so the collar lizard is, in some ways you can think of as a keystone species for the rest of the community in those glade habitats. Um, but another uh, positive influence where it does kind of tie in sort of your game uh, management is that uh, habitat restoration for collar lizards and for glades is almost exactly what you do to restore things for bobwhite quail. Okay. And you see a, a huge benefit 
for Bob White quail is going to help the collar lizards and vice versa. Okay. So, you know, uh, for, for kids and for non game folk, you know, minded folks, the collar lizards are really good, um, you know, sort of model species to show off, see how he's big and pretty and everything else, you know, yeah. but for then a lot of other folks that aren't so concerned about the lizard, then our other species that is really tied to this whole thing with Bob White quail. Of course, gotcha. Turkey would really benefit from this. And, you know, these areas, you know, if you, if you're trying to have elk along the Buffalo river in Arkansas, um, the same things we do to restore habitat for elk helps the collared lizard. Um, white-tailed deer, you're, you're definitely not going to hurt them, but you know, white-tailed deer can live in so many different habitats that I don't really see some major benefit from it. But you're definitely not going to see a decline from it either. So. Gotcha. That's yeah. It's crazy. You, you think about, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you see on social media is probably game animal related, but yes. just to kind of see how it all ties in is interesting. Um, the tracking in the lizards, you know, you mentioned maybe, or you do kind of bring them into a zoo and kind of have them in a controlled environment. And then possibly whenever the habitat gets to where you think it's efficient enough, releasing them back in there. How do you, how do you track these things and go out and find, as I imagine they're not very big. So you probably, you know, is it GPS to stuff or? So there is some GPS stuff that we're, we do have in the works. We're, we're uh, trying to partner with a uh, engineer lab in, in California. It's going to help us try to figure out if we can put GPS trackers on them or help us track them. But historically what we don't, we, we actually physically capture them. Okay. Um, so, but before I get into that, let me, let me, uh, make sure I preface like the, the, the zoo program, we just have like right now we have six breeders. And so, uh, that's, that's, uh, two males and four females and those females are going to lay anywhere from eight to 20 eggs a piece. If we can have high success rate with those eggs and those babies, then each one of those females is giving us, you know, 10 to 20, um, uh, babies, you know, per year, and then they make it to be yearlings, you know, so they stay at the zoo for a year. And then that next spring, when it, then I can go and release those and you have much greater numbers. Um, we do have other places where these are sort of uh, top secret populations that I will also pull from. And those right now, are really what we hang our hat on uh, any of our reintroductions. I haven't done any reintroductions from the the Head Start program, oh, okay. The zoo, but but it's just started, and we're you know we're hoping this helps supplement some of the other populations. So the, I'm never having to pull too many animals from one given population. Gotcha. Um, so, but to, yeah, so tracking them, literally, I go out there and catch them uh, with uh, sort of this um, this lasso setup that's on a on the end of a crappie rod, uh, <laughs> set it over their head, and then I permanently I permanently tag them by removing a known or I remove a, a, a toe. Oh, wow. Uh, there are different appendages and each, each toe on every hand has a number. Okay. Um, and so then that number, I would record what that number is. And so that each individual would have that unique number. Um, and the one other thing that you said is you, you imagine that they aren't, they aren't that big. So these are um, a, a male would be probably tail and all, 14 inches. Um, okay. Yeah. Head would be an inch and a half, almost two inches wide. If he gets hold of your finger uh, at the wrong spot, you're probably going to need stitches. And that's oh, not wow. from teeth. That's from all out muscle force. Um, wow. I mean, they, they have a really a strong uh, bite to them, a really strong bite. Um, so I can see, you know, with, with a pair of binos out there on the glade, I can, I can spot them from, 
you know, 50, 60 yards, no problem. No kidding. Yeah. That's interesting that you kind of cut something off first, like banding yeah. it or do that. Yeah. Is that just because maybe it'll fall off or the bands aren't so small that you can get it around maybe? You can do, so there's several different techniques that are out there for different smaller critters. Yeah. Um, with lizards, historically, we've done just pretty much across the board. They've done so they've done some beating, but that's not necessarily better for the animal. Um, if you have enough money in your project, you can use a camera that does morphological connections on their uh, their coloration. Okay. You know, but you got to have a lot of money. I didn't have near, nowhere that near that money. So right. easy way. And then also, by the way, that gave me genetic tissue um, was to do this toe thing on their toes. So you clip off a, you, you know, usually two or three different toes on the entire animal and then you don't have to clip them again. They don't grow back. And then I catch them four years from now and I know exactly which lizard it is and oh, okay. and able to keep track with them over time. That's crazy, dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I know you came on to talk about pack goats and I wasted yeah. a bunch of time talking about these lizards, but I love that kind yeah. of stuff. And it's really, it's really interesting <laughs> to talk to. So does this, um, let's kind of talk, switch gears a little bit to snake mountain pack goats and kind of tie in maybe how you got involved with that. Was it through some of the work you're doing, uh, previously with your dissertations and stuff, or was it something that it really, to be honest, it, it wasn't so much. So it, it really started, uh, I had, I had volunteered with other vet organizations. This was before I knew about the fallen outdoors. Okay. Um, but I had volunteered with other vet organizations, not too many of them in the outdoors. Um, but you know, and they did a lot of good stuff, but I, I was looking for something that really fit me and the things that I was interested in, not right. necessarily that I wanted to do it myself. Um, but you know, something more, you know, let's get, let's be active and let's get outdoors because those are the things uh, that really helped me after I, you know, after we came home from Iraq, I was injured in Iraq and dealt with some PTSD. And so some of the things that really helped me, I felt like, you know, I would love to either be part of an organization or run an organization um, that focuses on some of the same things that helped me. Yeah. And that was being an outdoors. And to be honest, it was also animals. I had some goats at that time and I thought goats were really cool. Uh, I've always just had a thing for goats, but I never connected. I didn't connect this, the pack goating thing uh, with this sort of veteran serving veterans and, and everything else or the outdoors until I saw a YouTube video of elk hunters out in the Northwest using pack goats uh, for elk hunting. Okay. And I thought, man, that's amazing. And so I reached out to some of these guys out, uh, Mark Warnke, um, so High United, Pack Goats. Uh, a lot of these guys are veterans um, and, and do a lot of good stuff out there. And they, you know, they have these amazing Pack Goats and they, these videos look awesome. And I, I call them up and I'm like, hey, could I do this in Arkansas? I have, I have mountains there. I live in the Ozarks. Um, you know, I have access to goats. Is, is it just, we, would we not do it in the South because it's too hot or what? And their reply across the board was there's no reason why you can't do it. No, it doesn't. You know, you might, you might not be able to do much packing in July and August, but there's no reason why you can't do it in the South. The reason why people aren't doing it there is it hasn't really caught on, you know? And so next thing I know, I'm out there looking for the right goats and bring some more goats on the place. So my goat herd slowly keeps on growing and uh, fell in love with it before I, I kind of had the vision, the vision of snake mountain pack goats, yeah. but I hadn't even started it. And then before I really got things going, I ran into the fallen outdoors. 
and I found on Fallen Outdoors just, uh, you know, just scrolling through Facebook. And I think a friend of mine had him on there and, you know, had some hunt. And so I got into Fallen Outdoors, uh, one, to be part of that organization seemed like an awesome organization. But number two, just kind of see myself, you know, what are some things that I could take away that would help me with this organization? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be um, um you know, all over the U S it's just me. It's just, it's yeah. just me and my staff that come and help and everything else. But there's still a lot of takeaways, you know, learning lessons. And there's certain things that I do from learning how things work well for fallen outdoors and what things I saw, you know, some of the guys posting and saying, this doesn't work so well. Um, I used a lot of that. So that all happened around the same time. And then, uh, once, once I got things going and got a little bit of word around Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas, I started getting support from everywhere. And, and, you know, here we are three years later, rocking and rolling. So where's the name snake mountain come from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when we first moved here to this farm, we're on the side of a hill. It's, I, I don't know, you know, depends on where you're from, whether you call it a mountain or not, but it's pretty steep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you, if you're up at the top of my, uh, you know, parts of my, my, uh, property and you trip and fall and you don't stop yourself, you might roll, you know, a, a quarter mile down to the bottom. Okay. Yeah. Um, we and, call that a mountain here in Western Kansas. So <laughs> yes, exactly. yes, exactly. So, <laughs> um, and when we first moved here, there was snakes all over the place. Of course, I'm not afraid of snakes. I like snakes. I thought they were cool. And uh, yeah, pit viper reptile guy, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, we ended up just teasingly naming the farm Snake Mountain Farms. And uh, but then we got goats in, and the goats started clearing out vegetation. And that's the thing about having no vegetation left behind. Snakes need that stuff. They need places to hide, and so my snakes disappeared. But the name kind of stuck. We had named several, we had a couple of different places I had a, on my shop, it said snake mountain shop and, you know, just different snake mountain things. And so we decided to start the pack goat thing. We thought, I don't know, it, but to us, it had a cool ring to it. Maybe it chases off some people that hate snakes. Uh, but I think maybe if they read into it just a little bit, they'll see, we don't, we don't really do anything with snakes. Anymore. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering if it had any like geographical, like if there yep. was an actual mountain around there that was named yeah. snake mountain or that sort of thing. So no, nope, no. Nope. I mean, all the name, all my neighbors know whenever, you know, when they're talking about my property, that's snake mountain, you know, okay. snake mountain and, and you'll find the goats, you'll see the goats up on the hill on top of the mountain and, and whatnot, but no, otherwise no, no, no formal name for it. So the goat packing thing, was it more of just a necessity because you already had goats versus, because when you see a lot of pack services, maybe it's mules or horses or yes. alpacas, that kind of thing. I, I don't really think I really noticed goat packing was a thing until um, you guys actually reached out to do this podcast. And then I kind of started seeing it a little more. Um, is there a, did, did you already have the specific breed of goat that you needed to pack or is there a specific type of yeah, goat that you kind of need? There's not one specific breed, but there are traits and okay. there's a handful of, of breeds that have those traits. Okay. One of the main traits being big, you okay. know, it's a percentage of their body weight. So most pack goats, sort of that, that threshold is, uh, you know, most pack goaters are looking for 200 plus pound goats. You can oh, pack wow. a 150 pound goat, but he's not carrying a whole lot and he's not, you know, the biggest animal. So okay. that 200 pound plus my biggest goat's 240. 
Wow. Um, and I've got a couple, I've got three that go over 200. And so they can carry a pretty good load, you know? And so, but no, I didn't have the right goats. Um, I had to go out and start looking for them. And, uh, but I didn't have to pay much for them because no one around here knows that's what I want them for. If you were looking for these certain traits out in Idaho or Colorado, people are going to charge a little bit more because they're like, oh, you're a pack goat. And I know you okay. why you want that goat. And this is why, and you know, whatever. Blah, blah. I hear no one knows anything about it so they're like yeah come get that stupid thing. it's too big right, yeah. what you're right. gonna do with it you know yeah. and i'm like well i know exactly what i'm gonna do with that guy. <laughs> um so the pros and cons of goats compared to other packing animals so uh, i'll start with the pros um they're dirt cheap even if you're out you know in, out in the midwest where they're more expensive you're still not going to pay much for goat goats just aren't expensive right so goats are cheap they're easy to maintain you don't need a big property. Um, you, you don't need to be, you know, you don't have to go to equine school to, you know, on all these other things that all the way around, just sort of maintaining them um, is a lot cheaper. Uh, if you have a, a full size truck and a camper shell, you can easily put six full grown pack goats in the back of that truck. Um, no problem. Uh, if you have a horse trailer, I got a small horse trailer and, uh, and a camper shell and people will think it's clown car, but goats love that. They actually get along better. If you pack them in tight, really? they, they stop fighting and arguing. They're just like, Hey, what's up, buddy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so you pack them in like clown cars. And so I'll take 12 to the trail. Oh, wow. You take 12 goats with a full size, you know, regular camper shell bed and a, and a tiny two horse trailer. And, uh, so, so that's a positive when we get out there, I don't need to bring food. Uh, I need to make sure that I have a water source, not too, too far, but I don't have to bring food. Pretty much every other pack animal, you're going to need to bring food. Um, yeah, especially if you're going to be out there very long, you would have to bring some type of food source. We don't have to bring anything. Um, and then the other thing would be terrain. I'm, you know, I don't know, uh, there may be some, you know, some mule guys out there that would disagree, or there may be some, you know, some other packers out there that would feel like, you know, that they could go the same places that I can go, but I can say, I, I, I wouldn't ever take a mule, the places I go with my goats. So essentially the places we go, as long, as long as I can get there without repelling gear, like literally, yeah, I can I can scale a wall, but if I don't need repelling gear to do it, the goats aren't going to struggle at all with their load or anything else. So these are like climbing up sides of mountains with tons of big rocks on them, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, paved There's trails. One, one of our hikes that we go on, we go up, we go straight up this waterfall. And, uh, you know, primarily if it's, there's not a lot of water in it and if there's some in it and you're scaling it with a pack on your back, you know, and you get up to the top and then you call the goats and they boop, 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 right up to the top. Wow, <laughs> you're sitting there on. And if you take too long, they'll just pass you and just go right on by you. Um, so they handle the terrain really well. Um, they're, they're really easy going. And then on top of everything else, the thing I wasn't really thinking about specifically before, but part of the reason why I picked goats is I like goats. You know, I thought they were cool, but they are more similar to having dogs around the camp and around people for this project that, that we're doing around, you know, veterans and, and PTSD. And even we get a lot of guys that, you know, at first they may not have any type of you know, love toward the goats. They like to tease me. Hey, which one are we going to eat when we get out there? <laughs> I'm always like, I've never heard that before, you know, <laughs> you know, and all oh, this dumb goat or whatever. And then by the time we're heading back, they're like, man, I, I really like Ranger. I, you know, will you keep me updated? How Ranger <laughs> doing? You know, I fall in love with him. 
Yeah, you fall in love with them because <laughs> at the end of the day, they're they're more comp. You know, even though they're big, they're two hundred pound goats. They're still closer to a dog. Yeah. And you know, having you know three mules off to the side, they're off over in their own area and, and whatever. I mean, they literally can sit down next to you, and you can feed them some uh, you know some um, trail mix, and they're gonna have a good old time and just love on you. So you don't have to tie these things up when you're at campsites or do that. So maybe at nighttime, but. At nighttime, yes, because of predators. So the biggest concern would be that the predator pushes him away where you can't help the goat. Okay. uh, Chases him off from camp. Um, During the day, seldom are they. You know, sometimes we're working on something and I don't want to have to pay attention to them. uh, So then I will tether them up. But otherwise, yeah, they they follow you. Uh, Goat's instinct is to follow the leader. And so okay. anywhere we're going, if I'm going down a trail, there are a lot of the trails that we hit, um, you know, a lot, there's a lot of horses and horseback, uh, folks on horseback, the goats are not afraid of the horses at all. And most horses aren't either, but you don't know which horse that is if it's right. one that's scared. Yeah. And so I'll have to bump off the trail. Well, it's super easy. I don't even turn around. I just bump off the trail and take, you know, four steps off the trail and, and they're all ducks in a row. They follow right behind me and it's not an issue. Um, same thing with dogs. I mean, they get, they've gotten really used to the dogs as long as, as long as I don't react. And what's also cool is sometimes we'll do, we do some squirrel hunts. I've got a little squirrel dog and we'll take guys out squirrel hunting. And sometimes I'll have a camp Jack or somebody, a first sergeant, you know, back at camp that's watching the goats. Other times I'll take the goats with me. And it's hilarious. Cause if you're going to run, like you know, sometimes <laughs> my little dog flashbang, she'll go tree something way a long way. Flashbang. And run over <laughs> yeah. That's right. Flashbang. That's awesome. And, uh, she, um, she, you know, she likes, she loves to go tree stuff. That's the hardest to get to, you know, or a long way to go. That's how, that's how it is. If you ever do any tree and dogs, they, they seem to have an affinity toward those squirrels that are hard to get what to. What kind of dog is she? She's a mountain feist. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's what she's bred for was treeing. She's a pet, but she is a good, she's a good tree and dog. But what's funny is those, those goats, sometimes I'll just have the goats with me. You know, I'll just take them as Sometimes it's just me, her, and the goats, and we'll go and scout off an area and do some hunting. And when I go running, those goats run right by my side. No, I mean, they, they want to be right there with you. So you really could, I, I don't know if you've seen, like in New Mexico, they do these like burrow races. Oh, wow. Where you have like a couple of burrows and they got to carry some certain amount of load. And then it's all time. They run all over the mountains or whatever. Realizing, dude, you could do this with goats all day because they love to run with you. you goat go racing, with goats. yeah, yeah. <laughs> put a light load on them and go running around. So for, you would, we'd have to make a competition out. I'm not going to do it just for fun. Yeah, it sounds like a kid friendly, like fun fair event. Yes, exactly. Like <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, how much? Uh, I know you mentioned they're like low maintenance. Is it like a specific acreage you need for X amount of goats and that sort of thing, or because they yeah. they do they do what horses do where they'll just eat until they die or do you have to kind of like watch where they're grazing that sort of thing? So goats in general have a really high tolerance for toxic plants. There are some things they can get into, but it's usually you're not going to run into to too much of it on most folks pastures. Now I've heard of issues, um, but for the most part, they're pretty robust to that. Um, the amount of goats per acre kind of depends on what type of land you have. Okay. But I think, you know, they say no more than four or five per acre. Okay. I think is what the standard is. Um, I have 19, um, total, excuse me, total goats and five acres. So I'm, I guess I'm still within that threshold, you know, gotcha. that, but, um, <laughs> the biggest thing is, Hey, 
you know, okay. you're going to be eating out a lot of hay. So if you have okay. a good hay source, a way of doing hay. Um, so we always use, we use males that have been neutered. They call them weathers, okay. uh, in, uh, weathered goat and weathered goats don't really need much grain past a year old, year and a half old. Um, you can give, you can have a lot of issues. So they end up being really cheap. I do get, feed a little bit of grain. It's more of a treat than anything. And I put yeah. a lot of mineral mix and stuff that they need. But they're they're really low maintenance. I have a low vet bill. Uh, every now and then, I need this done through the vet or that done so through the vet. Vaccines or anything like that. You don't really have to do that you sort of stuff, or maybe go to co-op and buy a bottle for like thirty bucks, and it oh, does wow. the whole herd for the rest of their life oh, for wow. most of the vaccines. Okay, you have to have some parasite stuff on hand. I don't have a lot of parasite issues because my my property is more. Uh, wooded and so they're not eating much grass they eat some grass but not a lot okay. and it's grass where they can get the parasite loads mine are eating brush and or mainly hay i mean they've eat, they've ate everything else around you know there's no there's not much lower <laughs> well that's what i was wondering about if you have like four goats on an acre is it just going to be dirt in six yeah, months I mean, or it will be dirt <laughs> okay. they will eat it down yeah uh, they're, they're definitely good at brush maintenance yes you only a lawnmower huh you just get a couple goats <laughs> I have a ride on lawnmower. I've not fired up in two years. You got any problems with these things getting out? You got a 200 pound goat when you come home yeah. and it's sitting on your truck or something like that. <laughs> you always hear those stories about watching out for goats. Yes. So one thing to consider if you're going to get into goats is you either need to be really good making your first initial fence or really good fence mender. One of the two. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I, I, I kind of, uh, uh, did not cross all my T's and dot all my I's when I first made the fence and they, they held good for like five or six months. I'm like, Oh, this is no problem. And yeah. then it was just a rash, a string of them getting out. Now they, my goats are so tame. They'll never leave. Are they climbing it or are they eating through it or they'll climb underneath it? Oh, wow. Uh, my biggest goat, my 240 pound goat, sometimes like he'll get on top of the fence and lay on it. Oh, and everyone wow. else would jump over and he's like, all right, I'm coming <laughs> teamwork. Um, they'll try several different ways of, of not being contained. But again, I'm lucky in the aspect that number one, I know all my neighbors. I'm kind of out in the country. They don't have an issue with it. Number two, mine, when they get out, they almost seldom get more than 10 foot away from their, their fence. They're just okay. going on the other side of the fence where there's more brush that's still there. They just there. want that food, yeah. Yeah, okay. they want that, that brush. Um, okay. Ultimately, I've had to do a lot more sort of beefing up the fencing and putting up hot wire. I do recommend, you know, doing a hot wire, uh, field fencing and hot wire combined, um, even some barbed wire, just do all of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and make it pretty high. And then now, seldom do they get out. They did get out like uh, two weeks ago, Um but yeah, I hollered and they come running back and I found out where they got out and, you know, there's no issue. So what about training, um, as far as taking these things on trails, do you have them, are they all kind of like on a guide rope where they're all kind of on a thing or do you have to do any formal training to make sure these things will stay by you? Or is it kind of just a natural instinct to follow wherever you're going? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there, the first thing is you can't have a, you know, most people's goats aren't real tame. You have to spend enough time with them to tame them. Okay, um, so a lot of socialization. Socialization. If they've been bottle fed by humans, um, they're they're pretty much going to be really easy to tame. If they okay. haven't been, I still prefer the non-bottle fed because they're less needy. 
less, you know, less weenies while they're young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, and, uh, but I'd still prefer to just socialize with myself and just really build it into it. Then once they're tame, then the next step is getting them used to being on a leash. They need to walk on a leash. Then you tie them up, make sure they don't go anywhere. And then you walk with them on a leash. Um, and they, they all need to be able to walk on a leash, even though I seldom have to. Extremely seldom do I have to. In an emergency situation, you want to have goats that are really good at it. And I will tell you that once you spend a little bit of time with a goat, they will walk better than any dog ever thought about as far as healing. And they heal um, perfectly. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you can take any of my goats. I, half of those guys haven't had a leash on them in probably six months. But I promise you, I could go up there and take and show you all 10 goats. I could take one on a leash, put him on my side. And, and just loop and have a loop in the, in the line and the leash line. And he'll just walk right there with you. So they, they do walk real well. Okay. That's the first thing. Then getting them used to loading up, loading yeah. up can be a pain. You know, there's different strategies on how to do it. I load the, the, the least subordinate first and then the most dominant last um, and uh, different things like that, getting them used to loading up and unloading. And then then having the confidence to take them out in the woods. Um, now I already have pack goats. So when I have one that's coming up, it's easy. Once he's done everything else and he knows how to load up. And when we get to the trail, he's going to follow the rest of the goats. He's going to follow me. He's going to follow the rest of the goats. So you, do you put him in the back or do you put him in the middle to kind of keep them? Whatever he wants. Cause we don't okay. put him on. Once we get out on the trailhead, especially when they're learning, I yeah. go to a place where there's no one else at. I don't okay. want anyone else around. And then I open up the horse trailer and I say, Hey, go to that's the that's the call. That's the, that, that's the call. <laughs> they make them try to run in here, um, and uh, so they uh, they they come uh, they come running behind me, and I start walking. And the lead goat, he's going to stay right there on right on my rear, and the other more dominants are going to stay right there next to him, and everyone else is going to be ducks in a row behind them, and like they might stop to eat on something, but you just keep on walking, and next thing you know, they stop doing that. It doesn't take them long, and they'll. About the the harder thing is sometimes you get some young ones that keep wanting to pass you, and so you I I carry a uh, like a, a goat stick is what I call it. It's yeah. a, the bamboo pole about five foot long, okay. pole. like a healing stick. And, uh, yeah, healing stick and bump them on the nose a few times, sometimes more than a bump um, in that first year, year and a half until they kind of get figured out. Um, then the last thing is getting them in the, in at least in my neck of the woods, we're doing water crossings all the time. Okay. Goats inherently hate water. Oh, wow. Uh, people in the Northwest, uh, a whole lot of them just deal with it. They just go around waterways and they find different ways. I, in the Ozarks, you can't. You you have to have goats. If you're going to do this, that can handle water. So we do wake fishing. That first summer, while they're young or their second summer, um, we go down the middle of the stream and we'll go three miles down the middle of the stream. So they have no other choice but to stay in that stream for five or six hours. How deep are these? The second or third time you do that. Huh? How, how deep, I guess, how tall are these goats? Are, are they in like swimming in the water? Or is it just like the young ones will be really? Wow. Yeah. The younger ones will be, there'll be different points where they have to swim. But a lot of the places I take them, there'll, there'll be a point where their feet won't be touching the ground. Oh, wow. So do you, do you tie them up before you get in there or anything? Do you, you don't ever have a problem with like run away? You got to go chase them down. Run away. What they'll do is they'll stay back on the side, you know, like let's say it's a, a water crossing. Yeah. They'll stay there and they'll stay there and they'll yell, bah, bah, bah. but I have all, all of my older goats are really good with water. I've got a couple that will almost swim on their own. They, oh, they, wow. like, 
they're they're when when I show people in the Northwest, they're just like, I don't know how you're doing it, <laughs> but I do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, but like Ranger and Trident Lapua, they just jump right in like it's nothing. Okay. And uh, so they'll cross, and then now you have a couple of the youngsters. They're sitting there like, I don't want to get in that deep water. Right. Making little bye noises, and I just keep on going. We all keep going, and then next thing you know, they bail off. Okay. It's so it's a realization cool. of you're going to leave me or I'm going to get yeah, in this water. You're going to leave me. And that's the worst thing they want. They don't, they don't even like to be the last goat in the line. Oh, wow. I'm walking by myself, that last goat is always rotating. Okay. I don't so we'll be last goat. You be last goat. No, I don't want to be last goat. You be last goat. <laughs> back and last so, man ups all yeah, the way on the trail. Yeah, they call it that because that, they, they, in their mind, they're wolf bait. You know, that's the coyote. Oh, okay. the right. Whatever it is, whatever predator is going to get the last goat, you know, Damn. so they don't want to be last goat. Now, if you have a second person, if I walk with two people, a lot of times I'll put one behind the goats and then they'll quit doing that. Okay. So, but yeah, that sort of dynamic of not wanting to be left behind makes it where it's not that hard to train with water. You just have to spend the time with it. Um, and then the last thing for training wise is camp manners. And that typically, at least in my experience is when a, a goat is finished, when you say he is truly finished is when he has some some camp manners and i have probably three or four that have camp manners and the rest have crap for cat manners man when i say about camp manners you're sitting down there eating and they're off off to the side you don't have them on a tether they're kind of doing their own thing and then they see food in your hand or they see for whatever reason or they want to go get in your tent or they want to get on your tent, oh, yeah. on your tent. i was gonna ask they if wanna, they want to sleep with you yeah yeah they want to jump up on the you know on next to the campfire and urinate on the side of, you know all of these little things yeah so learning to be an independent and get away and and go hang out with the goats and go be a goat and uh the, those that are learning you you let them spend some time off tether but once they drive you nuts you tether them up okay kind of go back and forth spray them with a spray bottle and after a couple of years they get better but mine usually within that first two years they're a pain in the butt they just they're like a puppy you know just right. won't just can't help but keep getting into yeah. stuff you know? that makes sense um when we're talking weight loads for these goats what, what's the average weight amount that these things are packing around and distance that you typically travel so the sort of the standard is when they get to be three and a half to four years old uh, is whenever they can pack their full load and it's 20% of whatever their body weight is. Okay. They should be able to carry. Now okay. a good goat that you've worked, you know, that you've really trained and, you know, let's say you got him in really good shape, could hand, probably handle 25, at least that's what they say. But I personally never go over 20. Okay. Uh, and uh, most of my, most of my overnight hikes here lately have been shorter, you know, four miles in and four miles out, three miles in. Uh, we, we have a couple of hikes. We do five, five and a half uh, at different times for other reasons. Now I'll, I'll push them. We'll do 12 miles in a day, um, you know, eight miles. They can, they, they can do as long as it's not real hot, they can do whatever you can do. Now in July, June, July, August, well, you can't push them real far because that saddle traps so much heat. Okay. It, it just get hot on the trail working that low. But if it's cooler, um, when you're done hiking, the goats are like, cool, I guess we'll take a break, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's not a problem. What's the elevation change you're doing on these trails? It's with the Ozarks more often than not, it's, you might start out and end up at the same place you were, but you changed, you went down 600 feet and then up okay. 300 feet, down 500 feet and then back. I mean, right. you know, it's just really, it's steep, hilly country. 
Um, when we call it mountains, um, but you know, we're usually, um, you know, not that high in terms of all out elevation, but you know, if you walk with me, you'll feel like you're a mountaineer. So, yeah, I was, I was wondering like speed, like when you're walking with these pack goats and you, I saw some of your pictures recently, um, and you have a group of people and then you have like six or seven goats. Is it just a normal hike? Like, will they walk at whatever speed you will or? Yes, they'll walk at whatever speed you will. Now, if I have uh, a couple of my big boys um, are, uh, if I have them loaded down, I notice after about four miles that they're they're at a pace that is what most people probably like to hike at, but I prefer, you know, to go a little bit faster. And loaded down is 25 pounds or 30 pounds? Uh, so, and those times is when like Juan's carrying 40 pounds, 45 okay. pounds, you know, okay. you know, I've seen Juan do it, Lapua do it, my, my bigger boys. Um, but also some of it is, you know, the genetics that they have. Um, I have some good goats. I wouldn't trade them for anything, but they're not, I wouldn't say they're top of the line. I do have some top of the line that are coming. Um, I do have some that are specifically bred pack goats that are going to have the right frames and confirmations and probably have, uh, you know, be better for that, you know, that sort of situation, but I've still never dealt where my goats are too slow for the group of people that I'm taking with. Yeah. You don't have to like leash that thing and drag it along to get it to, cause obviously yeah. it naturally, like you said, it doesn't want to be right. stranded. More, more often than not, the goats are trying to push the group too fast. Okay. Even if they load it down more often than not, the rougher the terrain, the more the goat's going to be on your heels. Okay. If you take, if I take my goats, I really load them down on a nice cool day and we just go walk on a dirt road, I could out, you know, I could start moving up, getting away from them in, in a high pace after about four or five miles, they start slowing down. Um, but if it's rough terrain now, you slow down more than the goat does. He's got four legs, you know, he just does better in it. So it depends on the terrain too. So if someone wanted to go on one of these hikes, I guess, is it the, the type of equipment the goats are packing, are they carrying like the hikers gear or is it just like food and campsite stuff? Um, do, do you have a limitation on what they can actually hold and what they can't? Yeah. So the, the way those bags are set up, you know, you could run into things that are just too awkward. Like uh, when we do our hunts, we hunt using uh, our archery season, we do uh, crossbows. It's just easier to carry a crossbow on your back. Right. But usually that's all you're carrying is crossbow and maybe a couple of snacks. You're not carrying much else. The goes carrying everything else for you. This the food and the campsite yeah. equipment and all that stuff. Yep. Now, if you have somebody that can't carry a load or they need to be ultralight, then we can accommodate that. As long as I know ahead of time so I can get my pack load, my payload set up correctly. I can handle a couple of people not carrying anything. Most of the guys can handle some. And most of us try to keep, you know, between 20 and 30 pounds so that we're sort of doing our own thing. But we're not getting too heavy. You okay. get about 30 pounds. You know, anybody that remembers back in the military when we used to do that, you can do it. You can do 50 pounds, 60 pounds, yeah. kind of hard on your knees. And, right. and it makes it not much fun. Um, but yeah, they're carrying food. Um, Brian is our, uh, um, Brian Jane's, uh, doc is our, uh, is our, um, camp cook. And, uh, so him and t- him, I used to take, do the cooking. Now he's doing it mainly. And trust me, whenever you leave here, you're, you're not going to lose weight because we eat really well. Campfire meals, anything from fish tacos to brisket tacos to, oh, wow. um, to pre-made chilies of various types, um, a lot of stuff with black bear, um, a lot of a lot of really good meals. Um, so you know we eat really well while we're there, and uh, we'll have a lot of extra. I wouldn't say it's all out car camping, but it's all it's pretty darn close to car camping when you get out there. Okay. So, 
How many uh, how many staff members do you have at Snake Mountain Pack Goats? So I have, I believe, it, I think I've got eleven. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so That's quite but, a bit. Yeah, so it requires. So the way the way we're set up, we do a hike pretty much every month, right? We do a three day overnight hike every month, and then we have we might have a day hike in between there. We might have an extra hunt, um, but um, most of my volunteers have full time jobs and have families and everything else, and so a lot of these guys are hitting just a couple of hikes a year. Help me out on a couple. So each each month. I put out on messenger. Hey, here's our next trip. That's Who's available. Up. Yeah. Who's available for it. And, um, and then, so between that 11, you know, I, well, I've never had all of us out there. I think okay. I've had, you know, five or six of us at a time, but usually, you know, I look for trying to get two to three to four, depending on what we're doing. So, right. Does that depend on group size or how far yeah. you're going or highly depends more than anything is group size. Okay. So really the, the, the smallest group sizes we'll do would be our, like our archery hunts. So in September, uh, at the end of September, we'll do a uh, black bear hunt. We'll wow. draw for a black bear hunt. And, and, uh, you know, right now the way, you know, and this is all out in the mountains is on, on forest service government land. Okay. Um, and the way I'm set up, I can't really hunt more than two people. So I need, I'm going to guide both people, but I'll have a sort of a assistant guide and I need someone back at camp watching the goats. So really on that one, I just need to, two guys okay. to do with me. Now I will usually open that up for other people that you're not going to be able to hunt. I'm sorry, but you can yeah. still go with us. If you want to come and right. hang out and enjoy the campfire, enjoy everything else. And if that's the case, then I'll usually try to get one more staff member to sort of help take care of that. You know, those others. Um, but then like other times of the year when we're not doing major hunts or whatever, I'll have 12 to 14 people and I've done it with just me and another staff member. I don't recommend it. <laughs> There's no right. time, you know, you just, it wears your butt out. Um, so that's when I'm trying to get more guys out to help. Yeah. No, I noticed on your snake mountain pack goats, Facebook page, there's a bunch of stuff you share from 37 North. Is that a partnering, I guess, kind of pack goat organization or is that something that's separate or is that yours? It is a totally separate organization. They're basically an outdoor, more of a hiking guide service out of uh, Springfield, Missouri and Mittenville, Arkansas. They do, uh, they do all kinds of different hikes, but one thing they've done is they've partnered with us almost two years ago. uh, They've partnered with us to do goat hikes. And so they bring me the people. I don't have to do anything but show up and do the hike. They bring the people and they advertise it. They bring them to me and everything else. And they give us half the, uh, the proceeds. So they sort of uh, partnered with it. He wanted, it's Danny Collins, a really cool guy that that runs that. He wanted to partner with a couple of nonprofits. So one, we were one of the nonprofits he partnered with and and kind of takes care of us. And we, we found out about him from our uh, local, uh, outfitter here is sort of a hiking and outdoor store with pack Rat. it's a uh, pack Rat outdoors um and uh, pack Rat outdoors and 37 north sort of sponsored those first couple hikes and got us going but um then, then but the hikes now are just kind of strictly through 37 north um but those two big or local organizations that have really helped us uh get on our feet um is uh pack Rat outdoors and and um the uh 37 north so you mentioned that you kind of do one big hike a month, maybe a hunting trip or a small hike in between. How do people find out um, where these events are going to be posted in the future? And if they want to kind of go on it, is there a, 
a price associated with it or that sort of thing to kind of cover the expenses of whatever's going on since it's a nonprofit? Right. Uh, so the best way uh, right now is through Facebook, through Snake Mountain Pack Goats. If you go to Snake Mountain Pack Goats on Facebook, <clears throat> look, <coughs> look for us. I will post events out a handful of months ahead, and then I'll always post whatever's coming up. Okay. Uh, everything we do, at least for our main theme, anything that's posted on there, um, at least at this point, is going to be free for veterans and first responders. Okay. It's always free. You don't have to pay for anything. And I even have the gear. I can set folks up with gear. Um, you don't really, you don't have much uh, that you have to put into it. Now the hunts, I've got to do a draw. So I do a draw just similar like the Fallen Outdoors does. And a lot of times Fallen Outdoors will post that on the Fallen, uh, one of our hunts on, or our draw hunts on the Fallen Outdoors, um, especially our bigger ones. You know, that way we can make sure we get a good footprint and, and let folks know that we're doing. But when it's outside of the, the major hunts, you know, in September and October, we, we do we do a couple of others. Outside of those, we don't really draw. It's pretty much whoever wants to go. If we're doing a squirrel hunt, okay. and I can I can take 15 people squirrel hunting, you know. Right. We're just hiking or if we're just doing fishing, I can take a lot of people fishing. Um, so on the rest of those, pretty much all you're going to have to do, you won't have anything specific. You either post something on our page. You can messenger, you can messenger me. You can find me on Facebook, Casey Brewster. Um, or you can go to our website. Our website is working, but it's, we're still working out some of the kinks in it. And, and I'm not real good at that thing, uh, but it's snake mountain pack notes.org. You can go okay. on there. Uh, so anyway, you get in touch with me, I'll get you signed up. So. Yeah. I guess that's something I overlooked was the, um, I guess, mission statement of snake mountain pack notes. Is it, is it, something that you thought of maybe to give back to the veteran and first responder community? Is it open to the public? Is there any? Yes. So that, so originally, and, and it is to this day, it was really to kind of do the things that helped me from okay. combat. PTSD okay. Yeah. Share your experiences. And, and I went from just veterans to also first responders. Uh, you know, I really think about law enforcement, but all, uh, um, first responders because my neighbor, my neighbor is law enforcement. He was uh, just three years ago was shot and went through a whole lot of the same things that we dealt with yeah. uh, when overseas. And yeah. I realized, man, there's no reason why I can't include them. And, and I've, you know, most of us that are military community have had a special place in our heart for law enforcement and first responders. Yeah. And that just sort of kind of put it over that threshold, but all it's always free on those main events. Now we will do specific fundraiser events that will be open to the general public. Um, and those, uh, depending on what it is, we're going to either charge or we're going to charge the snot out of them. Like when, if you ever get me where I'm doing black bear hunts for civilians, I'm going to, I'm going to charge. Them. I'm going to, you're going to pay for it. Um, very unique. There's no one in this part of the country that does anything like that. And I think yeah. once we get all of our, uh, everything ironed out and figured out exactly how we're going to do this and, and showing some success of this, you know, some more pictures of, of things that we've uh, put down, uh, I think, our best fundraiser will be, um, you know, charging folks at Walmart or JB Hunt or some of these other people with big pockets, you know, three grand for me to take them hunting. And then, man, I don't have to do a lot of fundraising because right. we are, you know, we are sort of low overhead. So, right. um, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Is there, I guess best way to message you now would be a Facebook group. I just didn't know if maybe a group was listening to, and they kind of wanted to do a one-off event, or maybe they wanted to do something outside of the one month thing. Do you work with people individually to, to set I those? Do. 
I do try to, and I have done a couple of, of, uh, you know, sort of short notice. Hey, yeah. I, you know, I know somebody that really needs to go and, you know, he wants to take him and his son or whatever, you know, I, I will always try to call I'm, I'm pretty busy and it is more often than not, it will be just me or, or a couple of staff, but I will always try to do some of those. And we will do, we will, we will um, adjust any type of event coming up to fit whatever the needs that they are. Okay. Uh, that individual needs. So we might have a situation where they can't hike a long way. Right. Load, load with a light load or, you know, you name it, you know, wh- whatever it is, we will always try to accommodate that certain situation um, and I almost always can do a day hike. Okay. Um, and so, you know, even if we can't put everything together to do an all out uh, overnight, uh, you know, I can get someone in, keep them at the house that the night before. And the next morning we get up and we go and go do what we would normally do. But then we we make it back there that day um, and, and show you some pretty country and walk with some goats and kind of see what we do. Um, I do a lot of those. Um, so I'll always try have you ever facilitated like a limited mobility type thing where maybe someone had like a track chair or something and wanted to come out? And- I haven't yet. Um, and part of the reason why is because the land that sort of the, this project is really focused on, you know, backcountry and yeah. the Ozarks is so gnarly. It's really, okay. however, I have, um, uh, and so has fallen outdoors. We have had folks that have sort of, you know, maybe not all out given us permission, but have either said, Hey, if you want to do one hunt a year here, you know, I have the property where you could do some type of limited mobility. Yeah. Or whatever. It's the reason why I haven't done a lot of that is just getting an, what I really need is help from my staff. Like, okay. okay so this staff member, eventually I'd like to have a staff member that sort of focuses on some of these things that don't necessarily focus on me and the goats going way out in the mountains. Right, we can right. still get the goats involved in that situation, yeah. right? We can still let those people see them and, and be around it and everything else, but I would need access to the land and sort of somebody to kind of ramrod that part of it and advertise for it. So. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I'm sure that stuff's hard to facilitate anyways. And then when you're talking about this elevation change and maybe not using um, improved trails and going mm-hmm. off on a rocky terrain and stuff, that would obviously be difficult. I just didn't know if you had any capacity for that right now. So. Yeah, I'd like to. And the, the other thing we've thought about is partnering eventually with folks that have mules. Yeah. Um, because, you know, even though I talk about all these pros with mules or with goats over mules, one thing mules will always have on goats is you can carry a human. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you get a 500 uh, pound goat. <laughs> yes. And I think, I think eventually, you know, it pie in the sky, you know, if I won the lottery or, or someone wanted to donate a crap ton of money to us, I would get a couple of mules. And anytime we wanted to do sort of more mobility impaired, but be able to still move on your feet once we get you off the mule or whatever, then the mules could go, people take mules with goats all the time, you know? So, um, you know, and working them together and you could do a whole lot more. Um, it's just the cost of mules and, and everything that goes with having the mules. So, yeah, well, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I'd like to, if you want to shout out some of the events that you have coming up, possibly in uh, the month of September and October, because this episode will release August yeah. 16th. So if you have anything that you want to plug September, October, and then if you want to go over again, where everybody can find out more, get involved with uh, Snake Mountain Pack Coats. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's see the, I think it's September 27 and 28 or 26 and 27. The last weekend of September is open an archery for Arkansas. Okay. And 
that's our best time to bear hunt is those first two weekends. So we're going to do a draw hunt that should, um, should be putting that out at the end of this week or next week. And we'll give a week or two or probably like a week and then we'll draw for it. Um, and I think I, I'm guessing falling outdoors will probably put that up for us. Um, they usually do our bigger hunts like that. What do you guys accommodate for that? Is it bring your own equipment, bring your own licenses kind of thing or? You just need, uh, at this point, I do, I can't afford to pay for out of state license. Right. So, okay. Um, okay. so if you are out of state, you'll have to look at that, um, and pay for that license. I might be able to throw a little bit of, of traveling money. You know, I might be able to throw a little bit of money toward, you know, some of that, but I wouldn't have a lot, but otherwise you don't need, I'll, I have crossbows. I have okay. all, I have everything else you need. Okay. You um, just get there, you get your licenses, everything else is. Yep. You'll, yeah, I'll handle everything else and uh, put you on a decent chance at some at some Ozark black bear, which if folks aren't paying attention, are some of the, the bigger bears being harvested right now the last few years wow. uh, in the country. So there's some there's some big bears coming from this area. Um, and then the following weekend, we're going to do a do-it-yourself slash staff black bear hunt. So this wouldn't be a fully guided one. This would be one where I would kind of give you some ideas. You'd have to be a, a, a confident uh you know, archery hunter already. Um, I might or might not have, you know, be able to hand you a crossbow. I've only got two crossbows. So taking you to the campsite and then releasing yeah. you to go do your own DIY hunt. Do, okay. I just want to do a fully guided. Okay. Um, we'll probably have a spot or two open for that. Um, that will be the fall. That'll be the first weekend in October. Okay. Um, I'll post that also here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then we'll do... I think I'm going to not be able to do a muzzleloader hunt for everybody in October, um, but that's up in the air. So I would, if you are interested in a black powder, I would keep an eye out there. We, we were wanting to do it in the Washita's, uh, which is some even more wildernessy area. Um, but I do have, I do have some commitments in the middle of muzzleloader. So I got to see if I can juggle that. Um, then we have a day hike this coming weekend. It's probably going to be too short notice on a win. Oh, this is going right. to come out. Yeah. After the day hike. Yeah. So, um, th- those will be the, the main events right now. So, okay. but we will have stuff that's coming up all through those next several months, all through hunting season and into the winter. Um, just go to the easiest place is to go on Facebook to snake mountain pack goats. Um, or you can go to snake mountain pack or you can email me at snake mountain farms at gmail.com. Um, or any other way that you contact me. So I'm Casey Brewster. If you look me up on Facebook um, or, or Messenger, whatever means, all I need is just someone to, to, to let me know. You, nothing, There's nothing special specific unless it's the draw. On the draw, you'll have to do it on the post itself. Okay, sounds good. And I'll make sure I link all those. Um, I'll get with you afterwards to get your website and your email address and the Facebook page, make sure whenever this episode releases, we'll have all that stuff in the description so people can find it easily. So again, I thank you very much for coming on and ex- kind of explaining pack goat hunting and hiking and thank you for your service. So thank you very much. You're very welcome, man. I really appreciate it. This is, this has been fun.